Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name's Travis. And this is Luke. We are Southern Men De-Reconstructing the South. So today we have um, we have our first guest on, a uh, fellow by the name of Lewis. And uh, Lewis, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. So my name is Lewis. Um, I have a Substack blog, gatteredroses.substack.blogspot. Then I also run a uh, Telegram channel called Voice Tradition. I do occasional writings for the American Sun. And what pulls it all together, whether it's the Telegram, the Substack, um, American Sun, is that you know I would describe myself as a traditionalist. I come from a school of thought. It started by a fellow named Rene Gunon, and I kind of tiled that with a bit of Orthodox Christianity and look at the political world through those lens. Excellent. Um, so you have a Substack article <clears throat> called Spigot Turning. Now, I just want to put a, a quick plug in here, especially for the Substack, because I've been reading through it, and it's an excellent framing, excellent uh, way to perceive the world and understand it and I'm a big fan of Alistair McIntyre, and you you put a plug in there for him. I was really excited for that. No, he's one of the best. He is, really. Could you explain what you mean by spigot turning? Yeah, so, you know, spigot comes from water spigot. And it's an idea of, I was thinking, like, all right, how do we look at power mechanics? Why are some institutions thriving? Why are some failing? Some are dying. And... Looking at this, along with some other people, kind of bouncing ideas off each other, we kind of boiled it down to kind of a maxim. You know, that which is uh, privileged, is honored, that which is tacked, is discouraged, and that which is subsidized, is encouraged. So for example, um, if you were to tax a church, you would see a whole lot less church buildings if you had a certain tax on um, you know, yearly donations to the church. You see a lot less donations. On the contrary, if you have no taxation on churches, we do currently, you'll see a large number of churches. Further, if you have subsidies for churches, if you had some subsidy program that if somebody was wanting to build a new church and a locale that did not have a church presence, so like a mission parish, um, and yes, some sort of subsidy to do that, so that way the state or local government would provide funding to build the church building. You would see a lot more churches in areas that don't have some already. And the idea is, is what's called spigot pointing because it's water spigot. The question is, who controls if the spigot is turned on or turned off? And the water in this analogy is money. And we can look at this, see why is the economy the way it is right now? Why is Amazon so dominant? Well, kind of the standard answer is that they're the company out there. This is just standard market competition. But if you look at um, some of the House proceedings and Senate proceedings at the federal level, you realize, and you also look at the different um, you know, payroll taxes and the different finances of Amazon that are made publicly available, they pay less taxes than that mom-and-pop shop across the street from you and they receive an ungodly amount of subsidies that they're basically a nationalized industry at this point they receive so much subsidies that it, they're near close to government agency whereas if you look at the mom and pop shop down the road or kind of the family diner they pay more taxes than all of these you know mega corporations and they receive no subsidies so this is no surprise so you have things like amazon or walmart you know, dominating the marketplace Whereas it's really hard to have a family or locally owned shop or restaurant for it to survive for more than a couple of years. And this is all because of spigot pointing. We could theoretically have a society in which we would not have Amazons, but rather we would have a thriving small business economy. If instead we tax small businesses less, then we tax large corporations like Amazon. And if we gave certain subsidies to um you know, multi-generational family businesses. So this was something that um, 
I'm going to do something I never thought I would do before, but this was something that AOC did a while back in New York. Uh, she wanted Amazon to start paying taxes uh, because effectively they weren't. And they just up and left the state. Now, the problem with her presentation is that she's just going to turn around and tax all the local businesses all the more so she can get her tax revenue. Whereas, from the perspective you're coming from, these local businesses would actually get either tax-exempt status or get subsidized for existing. Right. I, yeah, I use this as an example of just one way you can use spigot pointing. Because, um, I mean, what we have to come, come to terms with is there's already companies right now that do not pay taxes and receive subsidies from the, subsidies from the government. And every politician out there either wants, you know, their kind of niche business to not have to pay taxes and receive subsidies, or it's, you know, someone else's niche business that um, doesn't pay taxes and gets subsidies. So the question is just which companies get what. So if you want to have a small business economy, you know, you could have, um, you know, a small tax on a uh, business that spans more than the length of a single state. So if you have a business that operates in, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee, and they want to move down to uh, South Carolina, they would have to pay, you know, slight tax in order to have, be, have entry into the state. And then the money generated from that tax would then go to help those states in South Carolina that are regional purely to South Carolina. And then on a, you know, scale um, such as Amazon, you could remove some of their subsidies. You know, the money is already going towards Amazon then redirect those to more local businesses. So it's not kind of an AOC, we should have to tax whatever we can. Amazon is the biggest cash cow, so let's tax that. Because ultimately, you don't want to have a super high tax on these companies. Otherwise, they will flee. You want it just enough so that way it can counterbalance the um, interruption they will uh, necessarily do when they enter in an economy of much smaller scale. So these are all things that we can do at the local state level uh, or even the county level, I would reckon, uh, if your county has an income tax or county actually has enough to make subsidies. Uh, and it's not something that we have to be beholden to D.C. for. I know D.C. gives out a ton of subsidies to people like Amazon and, and Microsoft and Apple and things like that. But these are this is something that I could go up to Montgomery and be like, hey, we should incentivize, you know, a local business to, to prosper here versus having another uh, global, um, uh, just take, for instance, uh, we, we have shipyards down in South Alabama. Uh, instead of having another global shipyard, we could actually have a legitimate small-ish shipyard or shipbuilding company actually come into the, uh, into the bay. Exactly. You do this on all sorts of scales, all the way from the national down to the county. I mean, even the county levels, you have, um, I guess, depending on the county, you have different types of taxes, and at the very least, you have sales tax. You could always use the money that goes from the sales tax to pop up a local business. One of the things that I have advocated for for a while is, you know, the remover that, sorry, the removal of tax from uh, locally sourced food, for instance, where it's any locally sourced food is tax-free. Anything that's required for basic living should be tax-free. Um, this could even go to uh, providing funds for private libraries as well to help with education which is something that, you know, um, I'm a big fan of decentralizing education. So I think this would be another direction uh, that we could be pointing the water to. And that sounds like a great proposal to me. Because, again, it's, what is taxed is what is discouraged. So if you remove taxation from a certain thing, you remove the discouraging elements from it. Right. So if you remove the taxes from locally grown you know, crops or food, 
there's no longer that discouragement there. And if you'd have some sort of subsidy program, for example, if, you know, there was some sort of reward, you know, if you, you know, sign a pledge or whatever, they are, I'm going to buy my local produce from, you know, locally sourced produce rather than, you know, something that's made, you know, across the country. You know, there's some sort of like members reward program or whatever. They could be, you know, financed by the local county or, you know, charities or whatever like, like that. Maybe, you know, there's, you know, some buy one, get one free, whatever, right? Those things will encourage um, using that local grown food. It doesn't, you know, when we talk about subsidies with big appointing, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, here's, you know, county level, state level, you know, uh, D.C. level government giving Wadsville cash to people. It means any sort of um, positive reinforcement of a behavior. Uh, one, some of the pushback against this from the neoconservatives, from the libertarians, and even some conservatives would be, well, this is just more socialism. We're just making the problem worse. What would your response be to that? Um, you know, I, I do understand that response because for a number of years I was a libertarian of the Rothbardian variety, but eventually I came to see the state as um, you know, not an ultimate evil um, that does have moral legitimacy. So I, I can understand this critique. However, what I want to say is that you know, maybe in an ideal world, we wouldn't have any sort of state interference with the an economy. However, how things lie right now, no matter what we want, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, there is going to be some level of intervention in the economy. There's going to be some sort of subsidies and some sort of tax program. So we can try to dismantle that. But if we do dismantle that, what we're going to be left with is the same problem we have now. Namely, we have these giant mega corporations that are, you know, killing local and family-owned businesses. Why are these, you know, mega corporations, well, mega? Well, because of these state subsidies. So if you were just to eliminate um, economic structure as we have now and go to a purely free market, um, we would have the products of state-run businesses, such as Amazon, um, you know, quickly creating new states because of the amount of um, wealth they received from you know being out of the the state's teat. So if you want to have more libertarian free market society, first what we want to do is reverse the effects of the welfare state and the different sort of economic interventions. In order to do that, you need to not level the playing field. You need need to give small businesses and local businesses. Um, have the economic, uh, I guess, fair deal that they would have had in the absence of the state, you know, being turned into a spigot. But that's like one approach to it. Is you know, there's the kind of the ideal approach. If you want a libertarian society, you're not going to want a libertarian society that has the same the same. It's not shaped by state policy, right? We ideally want a free market and not merely. A regulated market in the absence of the state, which is what you would have if you had people like Amazon existing. And you have kind of the practical concern that, you know, no matter who I vote into office, no matter what I do on my own local level, I can't get rid of government intervention in the economy. That's just not available to us right now. So if it's not available to us right now, it makes a whole lot more sense to use what intervention is possible to support more, um, you know, more Christian, more moral options to the economy rather than supporting corporations that hate Christianity and hate Southern identity. So the way that I understand this is that this would be a way of correcting the economic sphere in the short term for the long-term goal of actually removing this whole system entirely and making things much more of a, a, a local environment. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I mean, that's, that's one way to frame it. I'm not entirely committed to removing the existence of spigots. I do not personally have a philosophical pro uh, problem with local, state, or even federal government giving out subsidies or levying certain taxes on different things. However, I'm saying that 
Um, this coincidentally is also the path we'd want to take if you were aiming towards a complete free market. Okay, that's fair enough. So, so it would basically be enriching the local community instead of these big global homo, you know, corporations that we have today, uh, like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, etc. You would be enriching, you know, Farmer Brown down the down the street there, and then you would also be, um, you know, the jewelry maker that that's in the you know the the, the town square. You you would be enriching them instead of Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. Exactly. And although you're, use, you know, quote-unquote using the state to do it, what you're doing is producing the effects that the free market would normally have dealt out if you didn't have the Leviathan we have now. Right. I mean, because it's essentially all, all tax money is our money because it's our money. You know, they, they take it from us. So why not give that money to someone that, it, that we actually like? Like, I don't like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, so I would prefer to give, you know, the money to Farmer Brown or, or you know, the, the trinket maker down the down in the middle of the town square versus, you know, some major leviathan. Right. I mean, especially in an age of COVID lockdowns, you know, Farmer Brown's going gonna, gonna to need some cash, frankly, because with all the lockdowns, we've seen, you know, over half of America's small businesses just close for good. So this problem really intensifies in the presence of a COVID lockdown situation. What would you say are the spigots that are most needed of turning right now? Like, okay, if we were to, to look at this giant, you know, I, I use the term Leviathan because I don't really know anything else to say, but when we look at this giant monster that we've created in, you know, around the country, really, what are some practical ways that we can point spigots to to, to just start this process. I don't I don't see us lobbying, you know, for, for me it would be lobbying Montgomery or, you know, lobbying Jackson or et cetera uh, to get the, the farmer subsidies just yet. But is there actual practical places that we can turn the spigot to work right now into the, um, to, to affect us in the immediate future and not just further down the road? Indeed, there are. Um, now, I meant to say in my introduction that I have been doing a little bit of it personally. Um, I also forgot that I had a podcast I just started. So um, it's that kind of day for me. But no, there are you know ways and things we can start turning these biggest, and things are actually happening already. One of these things is education, and that's why I was excited to hear that your past couple episodes has been on Father Dabney and you know, different educational issues is I, I do think education is and should be our primarily goal, primary goal of affecting change because, you know, and that there's that, uh, I forget who said it first because it's one of those quotes that gets attributed to just about everybody. And, you know, one of them said it, but you don't know which one it started with. And that's um, like, who, who controls the youth controls the future. You know, our kids are being taught nothing, you know, frankly, but propaganda at this point. Stuff that's you know, entirely contrary to not only the Christian tradition, but anything that resembled education in the past couple hundred years. You know, if you look at the liberal arts education that people are getting in Harvard um, or also in Oxford, right, it's something that is definitely Christian-formed, but these weren't, you know, universities that were going off to be a seminarian. You know, these, if you look at education now, it's nothing like what was being given, you know, years ago. And that's because public education system has been absolutely weaponized um, to, you know, teach nothing but, you know, ideology at this point. And even if you, you know, are more sympathetic to the public education system, you know, I, I've been talking to some people that are involved in it. And say, yes, you know, we do have some politics stuff, but that's recent. That will die down. Um, the amount of bureaucracy and, you know, technocracy, quite frankly, that's involved in it is rather horrifying. There is um, a whistleblower a whistleblower article, ooh, probably eight years ago now, and it talked about standardized testing. And, you know, standardized testing is closely linked with the textbook um, industry because the people on the board of, this, of the state board 
they determine what kind of standardized tests they're going to have. Well, they also have boards, um, you know, positions on the boards of different textbook companies. And these textbooks are used to study for the standardized tests. So what they do is they make sure that the textbook does not have the, all, the, all the relevant information for schools to get a high score on the standardized test. Well, why is that? That way the, that textbook company can come out with a new textbook to remedy that problem, see? And then they also have people on, you know, the same people are on the boards of the, of the state that are making the tests. They're making a textbook, but also people evaluating the test too. So this, this whole scam, it's a whole money-making scam that's just so bureaucratic. So even if, you know, let's say you're fully on board with what's being taught at public education, at public schools today, there's already a big enough incentive, right? That's just one instance of it being a monetary racket. So, okay, if we don't like public education system, we need something that's an alternative. Now, maybe it's charter schools, maybe it's private schools, um, maybe it's homeschooling, whether that's just one-on-one or with a co-op or, you know, kind of an online co-op. I've known a couple of people that do an online co-op. But we want to point spigots in that direction. And you know, something I've been involved with recently is something called the 45K Plan. And we have a website called the 45kplan.org. And we're also on Twitter, you know, at the 45K. And we're called the 45K Plan because you know, we believe that... Um, well, if you look at how much uh, funding is given to a student to go through public education each year, each student on average, right, some states are more, some states are less, each student receives $15,000 a year in funding. And that's a lot of money. And that's, you know, that's given to, that's not given directly to the student, rather that's given to um, the public schools. You know, they're, you know, tallied up how many students they have and they receive $50,000 per student. Well, here's our proposal. Our proposal is instead of going to the public schools, that money be given directly to the students. You know, we would fund students rather than the schools. And what this would allow is for the students, you know, but, you know, more importantly, because, you know, they're going to be anywhere between, you know, 8 and 18, they're not going to really be the ones deciding it. I'll have some say when they get older, um, potentially. It's the parents. The parents can decide, do I want to send my kid to public school or do I want to send my kids to a charter school, a private school, or do I want to homeschool a kid? Because those parents are going to be receiving $15,000 a year for each kid they have. And the reason it's called 45Ks because, um, you know, we kind of uh, capped it at three kids, um, you know, 15 times 3 is 45. And that's kind of just a, a rough goal, right? This is a, just a place to start, 45K. So that way, instead of having to send your kid to public school, you know, it, it can be expensive to send your kids to a good private school. And it's also expensive, you know, especially in today's economy, for the mother, you know, she's if she's going to be doing the homeschooling, um, to stay home and not to work and spend her day teaching. You know, because not only does she have to stay home to teach, but she also has to um, make sure she learns material herself, right? In today's economy, that is, you know, financially very hard. It's usually only the wealthier families that can do homeschooling. So that's kind of our proposal. And this is the fun stuff, right? This is kind of the cool thing is now this is um, the data is almost a year old now. So it's even better. But this is already happening. And multiple states across the country. It's over 20-something right now. And we have 19 listed. But right now there is what's called scholarship tax credit programs. And what this means is that um, you can get tax credits per kid to then go on to use that tax credit towards whatever schooling you wish. Which is almost what we're proposing. However, instead of... Um, just not being, you know, forced to pay the property taxes that would then go into the public school um, uh, fiasco. You'd actually just receive the money directly, right? Um, so it is a slight nuance there. But I mean, if you look at, you know, a state like Virginia, they have that. Pennsylvania, 
Iowa, uh, Montana, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana. Um, that's just to name a few. All these states, you know, if you have a kid uh, of schooling age, if you you have, you have to apply, and it's a lot of people. I talk to people in these states. Um, they don't even know this exists, and that's probably because they didn't hide it for a reason. They don't want people using it, although it's been passed. They definitely um, won't advertise it. Oh yeah, they won't advertise it. You do have to apply though um, when you fill your taxes. Uh, so that's a bit of pain. But if you do apply, it's almost a guaranteed yes. I mean, it, there's really no law in the book why they can't. It's just you have to opt into it, right? It's an opt-in program. Rather, I should rather say opt-in rather than apply. Um, you know, then I could send my kid, you know, the money that I would normally be paying to send my kid to public school, you know, via property taxes. I would get tax. I would knowing I have to pay the property taxes uh, for public school, and I would get a reduction in my other taxes, you know, and I could use those collective funds to send my kid to school where I choose. So this is not just theoretical. Now that this child's uh, scholarship tax program, um, it's not exactly what we want. And I'm, and some other people are in contact with a couple of different governors across the country trying to, you know, sweeten the deal and bring them closer towards their 45K plan proper. But, you know, this is not just some, you know, life looks an ideal that we have, you know, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do X, Y, and Z? No, this is happening across the country as we speak. So... What are what are some of the difficulties in getting it implemented? What, what's what's your big pushbacks? What's what's the big hurdles or brick walls or mountains that you're facing in getting this these kinds of policies put in place? Biggest, you know, a roadblock is the public schools themselves, the public school teachers and those involved in the public school system, like teachers yes, unions. Teachers' unions, yeah, teachers' unions, um, the money behind the school boards. Um, you know, there are also just people that are, you know, ideologically committed to public schools. You know, mainly it's the teachers' unions and the money behind the school boards. Because, you know, most people don't know this, but the majority of the country would pull their kids out of public school if they had the option. There was a poll done a couple months ago. I don't know, it's probably been a year ago now. That time has been going by very fast for me on my end. Um, but it was uh, the results were 60% of Californians would take their kids out of public school the very next day. Wow. They had the option to. That's California, right? These aren't, you know, people that say, you know, I want to, you know, homeschool my kids and teach them about creation rather than evolution, which, which is generally kind of the stereotype of homeschool mom. Um, this is Californians. And this is not necessarily because they just, disagree with the propaganda maybe it is maybe it's not i'm sure some of it is but they just see how bad the school uh schooling quality has become even if they're ideological on board public schools and what they're teaching they see the poor quality that's coming out so the public is very much for it but you know the public school unions and the boards they see what a threat this is and they know that within a couple of years of implementation um the public schools would be very low on money, very low, and they would have kind of a um, a war between each other over the scraps. So they see it as a threat, and well, rightly so. But there's a way around this, and um, this is also it's pitching it as well as a plan to save the public school system. Now it won't, right? So, but it will. This is not a complete lie. It will solve a major problem in public school. I was um, recently talking to a couple of public school teachers um, about a month ago, you know, about you know, those different things. And, you know, they were saying that the biggest problem with public education is the funding. And that's since public schools are funded by property taxes, you can have very um, wealthy neighborhoods that have very wealthy schools that can afford all the textbooks, that can afford the higher um, experienced teachers and that's the big thing people talk about textbooks a lot but really is is if you want a teacher that's been teaching you know for 10 15 20 years somebody that really has it down you have to pay them a lot more than a teacher right out of their masters or you know under the out of the undergrad maybe 
But if you go into an inner city school where property taxes are very, very low, you know, they can't afford the textbooks and they can only really afford, you know, teachers that are out of school for the first, you know, one or two year. And because of this, they don't have very experienced teachers. They don't really, you know, know what they're doing quite yet. And it creates a lot of instability because, you know, the kids, you know, they, they don't, you know, see a teacher for any prolonged, prolonged period of time. You know, they're going to see the entire faculty, you know, shift out multiple times throughout their school life. And that's, you know, frankly, kind of destabilizing to a kid. So if you want to solve that, you know, you don't give the property tax money to the school. You give it to the parents. You see, this will solve any and all um, wealth inequality between the school districts. So it will solve a problem in public schools, right? This is a very strong point in favor of them. However, um, they are right. This will ultimately crush the public schools. And it also brings a more free market approach to public schools. Uh, you, you can actually go and shop. Like if, if the jurisdiction that you're in, I guess, or the school zone that you're in, just has a poor school, you can always go to the more upscale place and then choose to send your voucher there or the money there. I mean, ideally, you probably could use a government-run school, but you could afford to actually go out and go to um, one of the the more prestigious private schools around as long as your kid made the cut, like money wouldn't be a factor, but then that would force even the public, the the crappy government schools to actually raise the bar because they would have to compete for that money rather than just say, we get the money anyways and you can go screw yourself. Right. I mean, you, the public schools that survive mass exodus would very quickly come close to private school quality. Because if they don't, they're not going to survive. Well, you, you, you were talking about the abuse of public schools. Um, Project Veritas just caught a teacher over in Sacramento who was inculcating the children with Black Lives Matter ideology and the like, and using his his classroom as a platform to literally propagandize his children, the children in his classroom, to be communists. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this stuff has been it's happening a whole lot more than people realize, and it's been happening for way longer than people realize too. And you know, this is why you know you ask what kind of spigots need to be turned. This is the first one. Because if you can get rid of the public education system, or at least severely weaken its grasp on our children, um, you're, the next couple of generations are going to be much more on, on the right side of things, rather than you know giving into ominous theories and selling themselves on OnlyFans and you yeah. know all that kind of depravity. How would we go about? telling our politicians about this do we go to the school board do we go to or i guess it would de- depend state by state and county by county on whether or not you go to the school board versus the uh state legislators you don't want to go to the school boards because um you know they're they're the ones you're trying to replace they're not going to sign on to it they have no interest they're going to shut you down um and they're not going to have power over this either they can't allocate tax money only the legislators can. So you want to talk to your local politicians, your local legislators. And if you go on the 45kplan.org, we have a, um, a sample letter to representative all written up. All you have to do is put on your name, put on your representative's name, and it gives a brief explanation and also redirects to our website that has the plan in detail. Um, you just, I mean, you write your local legislatures. You know, I've seen this uh, actually work in person. Um, I've known a couple of states that now their governors, you know, actually talking about it. Um, yeah, I guess without getting into too personal detail, but, you know, I see it coming, you know, very close to fruition. Um, yeah, so you want to go to your representatives and you want to also talk to those in your area that's going to be amenable to it. So do you have a homeschool co-op in your area? We'll talk to them. You have a private school, a classical school or chartered school, you know, talk to them about it and get them to write the representatives. I know once I started bringing this this subject up around um, a lot of homeschooling families, because 
you know, being a reformed Christian, there's a ton of homeschooling families just surrounding our church and everyone seems acceptable to it. But there's also this, this little inkling, this question that I, I do get. And uh, it, it's, well, if, if they're funding your homeschool, basically, so, so for the sake of, you know, this conversation, we're just sticking strictly with homeschool, not private school. But if we're, if they're funding the homeschool, what's stopping the state from dictating what you teach in the homeschool? That's, that's essentially my, you know, the biggest pushback that I'm getting on this. Uh, it, it's not the whole, we're getting money from the government or anything like that. It's that what the government subsidizes, would it not also dictate what you can do with this money and also how you must educate your child? Um, have you been seeing anything like that or what would your pushback be? Yeah, that's, um, that is the initial reaction. And that's because this plan sounds very similar to a school voucher program. And that, that is the problem with the school voucher program is since tax money is going directly towards a school, you know, school voucher, you know, you pay the private school directly or pay homeschooling, you know, let's say with homeschooling, they'll pay the homeschool directly, um, you know, because they're subsetting a specific institution, they will have access to what the institution does. But if you're just funding the students and then it's up to their families to use where that money goes, you can't have any backdoor regulation that way. Because all you're doing in law is saying that this money that normally goes to public schools will go to families and then they can use that at their discretion. I like that. I think that cleared the air a lot. Um, I mean, I'm still not, you know, th of course, this is still my my former libertarian withdrawals kicking in. I'm still not 100% sold on spigot pointing, but but I think it's a lot better than what we have currently. Um, you know, I, we, we mentioned this earlier. I'd much rather not have any subsidies or any taxes for that matter. But since we have to work within this system that we have, I think these are great ideas and uh, these are actually practical steps that we can take to free ourselves and enrich our communities. Uh, because even with, you know, if you get $15,000 per kid, that $15,000 isn't just going to stay in your household. It's going to go to Luann down the street who, uh, who happens to tutor for math or, or, um, or Kelly Joe down the, down the way who's going to teach, you know, uh, science or history or something like that. And it's going to stay within one certain community. It's going to stay within a co-op or even, um, or, or, you know, th th those kind of areas, e even if they subsidize out to say a, or not subsidize out, but, um, outsource to say a teacher that might've gotten laid off from the public school system. We can pay the teacher directly, bypass the entire governmental structure and the whole bureaucracy of the public school, pay a teacher directly, and she can get paid two to three times more than she was getting paid at the public school simply by being a good teacher. So there, there's, there's two things to follow up. First off, you have to forgive the Alabamans. They all have hyphenated first names. So we, we love our brethren from down there, and we pray for them often. Um, it's double names. Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, uh, the, the second element of this is, uh, so I, I used to have the same problems. Uh, you know, the, I, I was libertarian as well at some point. Um, I've been completely cured at this point. Uh, this, this past year and a half has really demonstrated to me the fruit of libertarianism. Uh, that's a that's a whole other topic of conversation, which, you know, we could have at some point. But, uh, you know, from my end, uh, you know, everything's a trade-off. There's always elements to this that um, we have to give something up in return for this. So what, what are some of the, the, let's call them, detriments of this program? What, what would be a downside to this from your perspective if any well if i'm you know speaking with my gut i would say there is none but i'm sure there is a downfall um i have not thought of one yet i'm sure there is though um well for one downfall would be okay so 
having family members that work in the public school system, I do hear the horror stories about these parents that don't love their children and basically have them live in squalor. Um, would there be any protections uh, via the 45K plan as you have it now to make sure that the the money this goes towards the child's education and not towards, you know, the, the mother gets $15,000 of, of a meth voucher, basically. Um, obviously, I think this is going to be something that we can't exactly control 100%, but is there any safeguards in place? Because I think that's another, um, would be another argument is that we're going to have basically baby meals for women to just keep having babies to keep this subsidy rolling in. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to, you know, just keep pumping out babies as long as we're going to subsidize them because let's just keep this, you know, let's populate the earth, right? I'm a Christian. Let's do this. So breed the pagans. That, that's right. But the problem is, is if the pagans do it and, um, you know, like, like I said, that they don't take care of their child, what's going to prevent them from, you know, us having basically a mass of, of uneducated youth running around? Yeah, that, that, that is a serious question. Um, I think you do, you'll have that problem with or without the 45K plan. I, I have known a couple families that are in the public school system. And, I mean, they just were not taken care of by their family. They were completely neglected. Um, you know, money that, you know, should have been spent on their kids' clothing or food, you know, went towards alcohol or, you know, towards whatever else. And, you know, that required the community, you know, stepping in and, you know, basically taking the kid and say, look, you know, if you aren't going to raise your kid, like we're going to, we're, we're going to provide the clothing that you refuse to because you would rather spend that money on alcohol or, you know, this, this situation is different. Um, so we have that problem either way. And there is going to be some families that will abuse this money. Just as there, you know, currently uh, people right now that will abuse the tax code and, you know, they will get um, tax exempt from, you know, having kids and they'll just have kids for the purposes of lowering their taxes. The problem is, is if there's a system, there's some people that are going to cheat it. And the problem you're talking about now is, you know, frankly, happening as we, as we speak. And it's sad, and I wish there could be some sort of, you know, rule you could put in place that, you know, makes people take care of their kids. But any sort of safeguard um, would mean to regulate where this money can go towards, and you're going to get back to regulation. And... Well, if you look at kind of, you know, where our, you know, federal government is now, you know, in the year 2021 and, you know, where some of our state governments are, um, I mean, I don't want California telling me what, what schools I can send my kids to. They're probably not going to let me send my kids to a good Christian school. Now, are they? You know, but they're going to be able to do that if I have some sort of safeguard. So it's a kind of, it's a catch-22. A, a way in which that could be used against us if there's some kind of regulation in there is you know they could just define some of your sources as not educational sources so if you know i purchased some books for my for my child from you know a christian education firm they could just say oh that's not education because it's you know teaching creationism uh and they could withhold that money from you because it's quote unquote, not being used for educational purposes. That's kind of the thing you're talking about. Right. Yeah. His main word education, right? If you say you can only use this, you know, $15,000 a year to educate your child. Well, it looks like, you know, little Susie's not going to hear mandatory, you know, BLM and Antifa propaganda. She's not being educated. You gotta take her, you know, take her out. Like, yeah, she's learning math and she's learning history and she's learning the Bible, but you know, she's not learning the state ideology. You know, you're right. abusing that money. So I've actually seen some states. Uh, I, I don't remember the state offhand, but I remember a family of my, a family friend of mine, talking about this, where they were trying to educate their their children, and the state that they were living in required them to be certified as a teacher in order to homeschool, and part of that certification is that they had to follow a 
a minimum standard. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is yeah, antithetical to Christianity in some ways. Uh, however you want to look at it, uh, from my perspective, it would be, you know, sheer materialism being shoved down their throats. Uh, but, you know, we could come at this from four to five different angles where a state could actually stop you from teaching your children your own values and virtues. Yeah, I think that's yeah. one of the... I've got an echo. All right. uh, I think that's one of the most crucial things is not having this regulation. I mean, obviously, uh, so the point I brought up earlier, yeah, that's a huge, serious problem. Um, and I'm not saying they're few and far between, but I don't think that they're the norm. Uh, but it is a it is a serious problem that I think we could we could actually address that at a county level. Um, or even at a smaller level than that. But being able to choose how you educate your child, I, I think, is absolutely fundamental to liberty. Uh, Dabney brought that up earlier, you know, when he was talking about the four different types, and he was talking um, uh, the toleration is, isn't liberty. Well, with a 45K plan, we wouldn't need toleration. We could actually have legitimate liberty. And... At the end, it's you know may the best may, may may the best tradition win basically. You know we're funding these these schools and we're building them up. We're enriching our community, and one side's going to collapse and the other side's not. And uh, if we know anything about you know Christian history, the Christians win. So, uh, and why not win with a little bit of state subsidies, right? <laughs> You know, that, that kind of solves kind of the objection of what about standardization? You know, if we'd have this system, the Propelka plan, and we, you know, see some states implementing or implementing things very close to it, you know, nearly 20 states at this point. Well, what do we do if there's not standard education? How do we know what kids are going to learn when they're not? You know, shouldn't every kid have a certain sufficiency, a uh, sufficient level of math? You know, that's, that's something I, I do hear from people that are sympathetic. And... You know, just kind of like market competition, right, is ultimately in the end will sort itself out. You know, if you have schools that aren't teaching well, you know, that aren't giving uh, good English, right, if their students aren't coming out knowing how to read it and write eloquently, if they can't come out and do math, if they don't know history, if they don't know their civic tradition, they're not going to do very well in the marketplace, and their, their schools are going to suffer accordingly. Right. I mean, this is how colleges work fundamentally. Now, of course, there's all sorts of subsidy processes with those, too. But if you look at how the university system started you know, back before, there's a lot of subsidies. Um, the reason why uh, Uber is somewhere in like the UK, where for a long time, I mean, even today, really, Oxford and Cambridge are the only two colleges or universities you know, worthy to speak of, is because no one's been able to come close to their quality. So you're going to have that with our, you know, lower grades too. You know, you're going to have schools that are very high quality and they're going to stay around for a long time. And those that don't meet, you know, what people would want standards for, they're not going to last very long. Because you, know, you can't fake not knowing how to read or write. You can't fake not know how to do math. But the, the same arguments that they're bringing up is we're having them in public schools today. Most people aren't literate. Just because you can read a billboard doesn't make you literate. Uh, so to, to kind of bring back what you were saying earlier, it's, it's a problem we have today, but maybe the 45K plan will actually fix it because we'll have an, you know, a better incentive because we're actually spending money where we want it. You know, we're pointing that thinking as it were. Well, and a, another uh, another plus to this would be because you're incentivizing your local community to be, you know, the the standard by which you're thinking and interacting with other people, and this will also be incorporated into your education. It means that your education is more holistic, so that you're much more aware of the local markets. You're much more aware of. Uh, how people interact with one another. You're much more aware of the cultural and the societal norms that your area has. And so 
it isn't that your child is just put off into this classroom. There's much more liberty in how you train your children. So you could incorporate your child's education into your job, for instance. You could work that out with your, with your boss and have your child as an apprentice. Or if you own your own business, you could apprentice your child as education. And this could help you out in that regard. We can actually bring the family home, you know, where they traditionally can. But anyway. It is so a way that I would like to see this used, and this is coming from my biases and my my background, would be I'd like to see a return to localism. Um where you know e you start from the ground up. You don't start from the top and try to work your way back down. And this will bring communities together. This will bring families more tight-knit together. Um, it'll be, again, a more holistic education. So I, I really like this idea. Um, one thing that uh, I'd like to see your view on, uh, if you don't have one, then we can kind of remove this from the, the whole thing. Or if you don't know how to address it, it's not a big deal. Um, so there, there's a rising trend, especially amongst Gab and the Andrew Torba and those kind of in his vicinity of this parallel economy. Now, this seems to be an excellent way of siphoning funds from the current system and then us building our own system our own parallel economies next to it. What are your thoughts on that? That's exactly what the plan is trying to do. You know, there's, you know, there's two economies, you know, if you want to be very simplistic about it, right? There's the mainstream economy and there's merging countercultural economy. Yeah, it's definitely one of them. There is a number of, uh, you know, dissident book publishers and clothing brands, you know, even some soap companies that are made by dissidents. Um, so there is kind of these two level economy and this is what it's doing is it's, you know, it's turning the spigot off of the mainstream economy and turning all the spigot to the dissident economy. Awesome. I like the idea. When you talk about localism, I want to go back to that just for a minute. It's um. You know, I, I don't know if there's a lot of, you know, libertarian listeners out there. Um, kind of, we've hit on, you know, some of the libertarian stumbling blocks of this. Um, and, you know, some people might think that this is just creating another Leviathan. It's just the one that we call ours. I think a better way of looking at it is that, you know, we want to have all these, you know, local communities, at least I do, these thriving local communities with our local schools, you know, that isn't, you know, that's kind of top down from the school board, you know, from the Department of Education, and they're going to push, you know, some federal, you know, mandates and stuff like this. You know, we want, at least I do, uh, want, you know, a thriving local economy. And, you know, with legislation like the 45K plan, no matter if it's on the county level, you know, the state level, the federal level, is instead of thinking of it as a leviathan, think of it as kind of a giant knight. And he's holding a big shield that's protect, protecting the local economies, local communities. Because we don't have that night right now. But if we do, you know, we want to be beholden to Leviathan. Well, and kind of using that paradigm, you know, if we want to go back to the old myths, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this quite a bit. You know, the, the, the hero actually goes out and before slaying the dragon often takes an element of the dragon into himself and incorporates it into himself so that he can defeat the Leviathan. So this could be a way of actually doing that. We become more dangerous this way. We become more effective this way. And in being more effective, we can actually sap the strength of the dragon that we're trying to defeat. Beautifully said. So we're um, right at about an hour. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. respectful of uh, of your time, Rose. Uh, do you want to go ahead and wrap this up, or do you still want to keep going? Um, I think we hit on all the all the main points, really. And I, yeah, I appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to talk to me about this. Because 
No, oh, we're glad like, you came it's on. Something that I'm, you know, I feel very strongly about. In our chat, we actually teased back and forth about doing a um, a traditionalism podcast. Uh, not not a, not a podcast, but an episode. I, I'd like to keep in touch with you about that. Um, if you have some good resources that I can get a base starting point, I'd really appreciate that. Um, you know, any books or articles or anything that you could you know point me towards that direction. Uh, aside from your blog, but um, you know, any of the the big guys. I can't remember who you referenced earlier who started the idea of traditionalism, but mm. Rene Ganon. Or is it here we go. That's how you spell it. Um you know, I would love to do a podcast on that. So and I'll um, let me try to find something that's not like a whole book length, like something that is you know, kind of condensed, but definitely gets the point across. Okay. That's not a problem. I mean, I... Oh, my I, goodness. My bad. My bad. I, I, was about to, I was about to move it over. Hold on. <laughs> I no, I, um, I accidentally posted that to uh, my channel. <laughs> wow. Okay, I just it <laughs> it's all good. So, um... I think we did. I think we covered a lot here. Um, so Lewis is kind of a closing closing point. How would you want to sell this as a as a package in just like a few sentences? What would be your your comments to people to who are still kind of on the fence? Let's say if you look at the entry exam to Harvard one hundred years ago today, in order to get into Harvard. You would need to be able to translate the New Testament from um, Koine Greek into English. You need to be able to recite and then translate the opening stands of Virgil's Aeneid. You'd have to be able to name all four rivers in Gaul in modern France. You'd have to be able to give a detailed analysis and comparison between ancient Sparta in ancient Athens. Today, if anybody tried that, they would fail. And that just shows how far education um, quality has gone down. And on top of this, we see, we see it, you know, I don't have to say anything specific because we all know, um, you know the details of how much propaganda is in public school education system. And, you know, quite frankly, there's a better way out there. We can have good quality Christian education. It's within our grasp. Awesome. Well, uh, as a close, I, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, this is a this is a great topic. Find me on scatteredroses.substack.com, telegram at t.me slash traditional voice. You can find me on Spotify with my new podcast at Voice of Tradition. Thank you so much for having me on. We'll have all of the links to his social medias in the podcast notes, and uh, everyone have a good evening. You too. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it, and check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at southernraisedbluegrass.com. God bless y'all.